0: Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog.
1: My favorite advice around startups is don't do a startup unless you're kind of forced to. You just like feel so much pulling you from like people and just the zeitgeist that you know, like, okay, I just kind of have to do this because, you know, this, this just has to be done.
0: From ChangeLob Media, this is Founders Talk. One-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stigowiak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of changelob.com. You know the feeling of getting started. It's a lure for us all. It's something new. It's something that hasn't been done before or at least not the way you do it, so it's exciting. But startups are a little bit different, especially ones that are started with seed funding or venture capital's involvement, and especially startups built around open source software. So naturally, that's where this conversation with Kyle Matthews, the CEO, and one of two co-founders of Gatsby got started. But before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor for this show, linode as you may know we host changelog.com on linode cloud servers it's awesome we get great 24 7 support zeus like powers with native ssds a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast cpus for processing and we trust linode because they keep it fast they keep it simple check them out at linode.com changelog so how did you know it was time to build a company around Gatsby?
1: I mean, you never know something like that. Uh, I had kind of the inkling. I mean, I've done startups. I've either worked at startups or started my own stuff for you know pretty much my whole adult life. And so I had a pretty good inkling that Gatsby could be a startup. But in the past, I've just kind of jumped into stuff when it was very underbaked. And with Gatsby, I very deliberately uh, just told myself that I wasn't going to Start a company until the evidence was very strong. For Gatsby, you know, so this particular case, what that evidence was was basically first, like I went full time on Gatsby. I just worked in an open source, like not a company yet, uh, two years ago. And so, evidence one was just that I was able to find contract work around, you know, building things with Gatsby, or even people pay me directly to. Make improvements to Gatsby, and I was able to, you know, pretty consistently find as much work as I wanted during that time, and so that was a strong indication that you know there was a lot of commercial value, you know, going around uh, Gatsby. Uh, and the second big indication was just uh, kind of the big. Just the excitement and pickup um, around, you know, V1S is getting closer to launch and when it launched, um, there's just like a ton of people using it, a ton of people, you know, writing PRs. Um, and so it was very clear that it was getting very serious and sustained usage, which is also indication that, you know, that, that a company could be built around it. Uh, and also just that there are some big companies that were reaching out um, saying like, hey, we have serious problems with how we build websites and Gatsby and React and, and, and the other, you know, kind of parts of the stack that we, you know, is developing around Gatsby solve these really, really well. Um, and so this is another, you know, a strong kind of proof point that, uh, you know, the Gatsby ecosystem could sustain you know, a large uh, company.
0: I think the interesting thing that begins to become more clear And what I like to examine in particular on this show, like to you and I, it may seem like a no brainer for a company to be built around open core or open source or however you want to frame that. So I think there may be people coming to this kind of show with potentially a different lens or a different experience level of, I thought open source was free. I thought. That Mm -hmm. you just give this stuff away and somehow magically a fairy is supported and made (laughs) it great and all this stuff, which you and I both know that that's not true. To like, here's this crazy guy getting $3.8 million from investors that have done some tremendous stuff and now he's forming a company. You know, to you and I, that may seem kind of normal and maybe even even in Silicon Valley, that's normal. But I think it's becoming more and more normal. But to, to many, it's just not, you know, how do you rationalize that being normal these days?
1: Uh, it's definitely not normal in the sense that it's like common. Like you can think about it like, every day. Yeah. It's like open source. I, I think the, the disparity is that most people's experience with open source is definitely non-commercial. It's just, you know, you, you throw something up on GitHub and sometimes people put up issues or even submit a PR or you submit to, you know, PRs to other things and whatever. Um, But it, it, it's just, there's a big spectrum of open source projects. They go from all the way from very simple, you know, like 50 lines of code that, you know, encodes a, a neat little algorithm that's useful sometimes, up to like incredibly complex projects that are like core infrastructure for, you know, thousands of other projects. Um. So yeah. So most most open source projects most definitely cannot, you know, they, they cannot support or sustain a company around them. They're just not valuable enough. Well, there's two problems. There's either they're not valuable enough, or there's not an easy business model that can be built around it. Um. And so if either of those two conditions don't apply, then you can't build a business. I mean, you can think about it also from a perspective of, you know, business. So businesses exist to, A, create value. So there's value being created somehow or another um, through the activities of the business. And then the business sustains itself by capturing some of that value. So customers say, you know, generally speaking, customers pay for something. Right. So for open source to work... You know open source businesses tend to capture less value than like purely proprietary businesses which is like why open source is so great is there's so much you know customer surplus being created um but for open source to work it has to create a ton of value because it's probably capturing less than you know an equivalent uh, proprietary business but also just has to be able to like capture value at all which you know is a, is a sticking point for a lot of open source projects it's like how do you actually capture value uh, capture some of the value that's being created and in some, in some types of open source projects just don't lend themselves to that, uh, in which case, uh, you know, you're, you're reliant on volunteers and hopefully, you know, maybe some companies that it's important enough to them that they just sort of sponsor part of the, the work done in the project.
0: So maybe to give a little timeline here in 2015, I think it was late May. You launched this as open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to go through the entire timeline right now, but what I want to kind of get is a perspective of, you know, I- I'm assuming you kind of, you were solving your own problems. That's why it existed in the first place and why you release as open source because that's the, the developer heart you have and, and whatnot. So it makes sense why you would do that. Did you think that like in those moments or earlier on, was it a dream? that someday you can form a company around this, that when you mentioned certain indicators or certain evidence, obviously you needed to have the evidence, but did you have the foresight to think that evidence would present itself that this open source project could potentially be something where you build a business around it?
1: Uh, At that time, definitely not. Uh, I mean, I started using React like early 2014 and like React was open source in mid 2013. And so when I started using it, it was about six months old. It was still very kind of like crazy, like, what is this, you know, technology doing? Like most people's, that that was most people's opinions of of React. But I started using it, immediately fell in love. And I just like had a very strong feeling that this was, you know, kind of the future of everything on the web. And so when I started working on Gatsby, it was still, I mean, it was still, React was still, you know, 10, 20x smaller than it is now. So it was like becoming a big deal, but it was still very early And, and... it's it's lifecycle, um, so it was still it's like okay, like I think this is like a really important problem that needs solved, and I had kind of the inkling that you know some tool in the React for website sort of space would be a really big deal, but I guess I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of like turning into a business because that's that's just yeah, much much yeah that came later um, after React had grown a lot and after Gatsby's just grown a lot and after I just also thought about you know the problem space a lot more.
0: You mentioned you were been involved in startups your adult life let's go back a little further to at least as far as i can go that i'm aware of which was in the drupal community whenever you were doing things around there I'm reading a quote from you where you said uh, you even attempted to build a startup based around Drupal after college. And I'm assuming that was a fail just considering where you're at today. So (laughs) let's talk about maybe indicators there and maybe lessons learned about like, you know what? I have better hindsight now. So my evidence actually wasn't that clear. Maybe I was premature. Maybe I was right on or it was just a different world. Tell me more about this.
1: I mean, I just didn't really know what I was doing back then. Uh, Yeah, the code wasn't great. I didn't understand really anything around marketing, sales. Just, yeah, just a lot of like fundamentals of like what makes a startup tick. Like I didn't really understand. And so it it was very much a kind of a, you know, blind faith, youthful enthusiasm. I was just like, hey, there's all these like obstacles and problems and I have no idea what I'm doing, but this sounds really cool. So I'm just going to plunge ahead and, you know, be really determined and run at this thing. And that sustained me for a while. Uh, But then, yeah, eventually I kind of wised up that, you know, the mountain I was trying to climb was very steep and might not lead anywhere. Interesting. (laughs) The view of the top might even not have been anything.
0: Maybe not not even the right mountain.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I was working on was kind of like a social learning. Uh, This was like pre-MOOC times. And uh, it was funny. It's like, you know, it definitely was something, there was something there uh, as as evidenced by, you know, Udemy and um, Instructure and a bunch of other uh, companies that actually merged around the same time and are, you know, very successful still 10 years later. But yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, d- I didn't have the right angle. I didn't have the right product insights. And I was trying to do it by myself, which just like too much. And I didn't do enough customer research. And there's just all sorts of things that I didn't understand well enough. I think that's one big lesson I've learned about startups is that it's like you have to get like 100 things right. <laughs> it's not enough to have like 70 things right when you're missing like 25 things. Because any, any, any one of those 25 things can just blow your plan out of the water. It's just the bar to be successful is super high. You just have to research and think about things very, very thoroughly um, to not waste time and to leave yourself like very vulnerable to you know, problems down the road.
0: Let's talk about the importance of open source in, uh, I guess, in business in general and maybe in particular Gatsby, Inc., and uh, not so much, I mean, obviously it's important to the project because, hey, it's open source and built on open source and all the dependencies that's clear based on you know your dependency tree. But I look at it, I see this perfect storm in your history of like, you know, learnings from Backbone.js, Node, NPM, many people going down this road. And as you mentioned, React, having enabled all this for you to build, you know, and the important point here being the importance of open source and the countless hours of maintainers, contributors, users of open source being this catalyst for your story with Gatsby to be reality. How does that resonate and translate into you as a founder and CEO, taking on investment, building a company around this open core project and business you're, you're building like all the countless hours there from so many people being this perfect storm timing, like the change of the web, the old way to new way. Take me to that story.
1: So Gatsby is definitely standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, You know, we see ourselves as, part of a much larger ecosystem and uh you know we want to be playing an important part and be a good member of that ecosystem um know I, i have a strong appreciation for just how much you know everything we do is all dependent on so many other people and that you know a lot of what makes a company successful is like forming good relationships with all the different parties open source and other vendors uh individuals and um you know just making sure that everyone is aligned on where we're going and what's important and working well together. Um yeah, because it's just like we just can't, you know, like node being fast and stable and awesome is a huge part of Gatsby being successful. You know, Webpack being fast and awesome and stable is a huge part of Gatsby being successful. You know, Babel, React, et cetera, et cetera. And part of my goal with Gatsby is really it's like I see all these great tools and I'm like, they could be so much better if there was a really good business model associated, you know, running uh, around all this because then we could funnel more money into making these tools better, which would then, you know, drive uh, the business uh, as well.
0: Is that part of your goal with, with Gatsby? I mean, obviously it's, it's further and farther reaching because maybe now you're still proving tech or proving product or finding traction. You're still in in the, you know, finding out what your true product is. So you can actually sell it. There's some worth, there's some value, there's some opportunity, but you're still sort of, I'm assuming, still in the proving grounds of, of the future. So, but your heart desires to lift up other open source projects that are beneath you in your dependency tree, because, hey, like you said, Webpack needs to be fast to enable Gatsby to do what it does, invite, you know, and on down the tree. Right, right.
1: My whole goal with doing startups is you know, we all live on this world and, you know, we want it to be a nice place to live for ourselves, you know, of course, and then for people we care about and then future generations and, you know, everyone else in the world, whatever. I mean, there's kind of concentric circles and on and so forth. And so I I want to like contribute to making the world like a better place and be effective at that. And so, you know, going back to kind of open source, it's like open source is like a big part of how the world works. It's like, You know, software is a big part of how the world works. And most of the software that's run is open source. So helping figure out how to make open source work even better, um, which will drive, you know, a lot of other improvements, you know, to the world uh, is, is to me kind of a pretty obvious good thing to work on. And that's why I like open source so much is that it's effective at building great software. And that's a lot of why I appreciate, you know, great businesses is great businesses particularly open source, you know, great open source businesses are very effective, even more effective at, you know, building great software um, that lots of people benefit from. So, I mean, we're definitely in the kind of the earlier, you know, proving grounds, like does this model even work? Does our product even matter? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if this thing is wildly successful, what does it look like? It's that, you know, Gatsby is driving lots of fundamental improvements to kind of web tooling uh, and, and... We do that. We can justify that because, you know, the better all those tooling gets, you know, the better Gatsby gets, which means all our customers using Gatsby become even more happy with Gatsby. and So then they pay us more money for services and products and so forth. So it's kind of this nice, you know, virtuous cycle where, you know, we make people happy. Customers love Gatsby. Customers love our tools. And so they pay us more. We get more customers, which drive even more improvements to, um, you know, kind of the underlying tools.
0: Let's move to earlier this year, May 2018, with uh, the company announcement blog post. You'd mentioned different things in here, and I want to kind of break down a couple different ones. Let's define the line between Gatsby the project and Gatsby the business. Let's start there, and then start to chisel away at at sort of like different business choices you've had to make. So help, help me explain the great question, what is Gatsby? The
1: fundamental goal of Gatsby is to improve the developer experience around building sites and to improve the user experience for, you know, visitors to the sites. So those are the two questions we ask ourselves all the time. It's like, how can we make development smoother? Uh, How can we help, you know, people who are unfamiliar with different parts of the technology, you know, understand errors or, you know, not get blocked by uh, trivial things that, you know, that we could like smooth over. What kind of new abstractions can we create that provide more powerful primitives to, you know, developers trying to, you know, solve complex uh, problems around like websites or apps, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then on kind of the user, you know, the kind of the user experience, like what is, you know, the end user experience around visiting sites? Like we're always very, very concerned around how to make Gatsby sites faster. So, you know, ship less code, uh, load faster, you know, lazy load, exactly the right thing so that, you know, anytime you want to do something, uh, everything's already ready. So it should just be a very smooth, glitch-free, uh, you know, fast experience for you know, using every Gatsby site that's created.
0: And what about the other side of that, uh, that question where you've got Gatsby Inc.? I mean, obviously you have to define a line because someone says, hey, Gatsby, they could be talking about the company, they could be talking about the open source project, and at some point, potentially some sort of product that may or may not be announced. So you can help me unravel kind of where you know, name choicing and, and whatnot, how that starts to define like, hey, here's the project, here's the company, here's the products, you know, in, in the naming scheme you've chosen, it could get confusing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That's a very tricky issue for any open source company that's trying to, uh, yeah, figuring out where that, you know, quote unquote line is, 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 is difficult and, you know, really impacts uh, people's perception of the project and, and, and also just, yeah, the commercial success of the, of the company. Um, so for us, you know, there, there's a few different ways that we look at this one, I think really important question is just, we want to charge people. We, 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 want, we think of it as a, you know, open source users can be dev- you know, it's, again, it's kind of a spectrum. There's like tons of people using Gatsby for personal projects, side projects, whatever, where there's just no commercial, you know, there's no commercial aspect to what they're doing. You know, right. there's no money exchanging hands. They're not making money it's just like pure play fun whatever and so even if we wanted to charge them they would never pay because it would never make sense and then on the opposite end of the spectrum is you know people using gatsby to build out you know sites that where they're investing between like people cost and tooling cost like millions of dollars and you know there's lots of projects like that and so we want to target all of our products and everything that we commercialized, you know, towards kind of areas where there's commercial activity, because um, we think that's very reasonable. Because if you, you know, if you're getting a lot of value from Gatsby, it only makes sense that some of that value should then we should be able to capture that. So that then we could then drive uh, more improvements to the project. And so we look for areas, you know, to commercialize where we can provide a lot of value to commercial projects. So that that's one way that we think about it. Uh, another way we think about it is. You know, what kind of problems is open source good at solving versus what kind of problems is open source not good at solving? And I think something that's pretty straightforwardly true or, or, or self-evident uh, just from like the last 10, 15 years of history is that you know, open source is not as good for running services. So any sort of like cloud service, open source can help there. I mean, open source is like kind of like a lot of like the code that's there, but it often involves, you know, very skilled people to build out systems and to run and maintain those systems um, in order for them to to work. And so, you know, open source is you know, kind of at the base of the, these, these cloud services, these cloud infrastructure things, but, uh, you know, there's just a lot of uh, skill that's needed to run and maintain those at kind of a like high service level and like, you know, high performance level and so forth. Um, anyways, yeah. And so... We see, you know, we we know that, like, so so far, kind of like complete our vision at Gatsby, there just needs to be a lot of cloud services, which kind of tie everything together. And um, these are not something that, you know, the open source process is is very good at solving. Uh, and these also are things that tend to be needed by, you know, commercial projects. And so anyway, so that, that that's kind of where we're trying to put our commercial efforts into, is like building out cloud services, which... Are kind of the glue you know that takes the open source um aspects and takes like other pieces of the ecosystem and builds out you know everything that a commercial project would you know want to uh, have a really great uh, experience using gatsby
0: right because i mean i i can pull down gatsby i can put it on DigitalOcean or linode or name your name your server or cloud i can do those things myself freely because it's open source is the whole point uh but if you know the uh You know, the value capture, as you had said earlier, of Gatsby Inc., the company is like, where does that happen at scale so that we can provide and build out services to make it easier, faster, better, reliable, whatever. It doesn't stop me from being able to do it on my own. But if I graduate or I don't want to manage my own stuff or whatever, I can come to you at some point and your turnkey. Is that the direction of the company?
1: Yeah, exactly. So building a Gatsby site with like 100 pages is pretty trivial. And, you know, almost, you know, a lot of people can do that. But, you know, you say running a Gatsby site with a million pages, all of a sudden, that's actually really, really hard, you know, to get things working at that scale. And there's also, so, so there's that aspect, just like, well, how do you actually scale out Gatsby? Um, there's another aspect, which is just like kind of the whole control plane, as some people call it, you know, around an open source project. So, you know, You know, you work on a project, whatever, you just like stick some code up on GitHub and off you go. But what if you have 12 people who are all working on, you know, the same Gatsby project? And what if you're adding and removing, you know, teammates every so often and you need to like worry about permissions and you need to worry about who actually can deploy things and, you know, stuff like that. Um, Once you get into that area, you know, you need some sort of system around managing um, access and deploys Etc. And uh, you know that's that's another uh, thing that companies are definitely willing to pay for, and is a valuable thing to offer. And and again, it's not something that's like really makes sense to uh, do an open source.
0: You know, again, back to something that people like you and I may see and it's less normal or visible to, say, folks who aren't engineers or software developers. The fact that you're an engineer and an entrepreneur in one and that I believe that people like you have the ability to see opportunities where others do not see any opportunities simply because you're aware of, of the technical implementations of something. You see the visibility of like old ways of web and new ways of web. You put out something to scratch your own itch, and then you discovered that, hey, people actually don't really just want to do static site pages. They also want to plug in other services. And like, this is a really big deal. You see and are able to see opportunities where others just see a website. And like, can you touch on, you know, maybe the opportunity you've educated on that's, you know, just the fact that you're an engineer and maybe what engineer founders like yourself see opportunity and maybe even the scale at which, I mean, you took on a seed. seed round uh seed round of three point eight million dollars, not a small number. Um you got great goals in line, but it's something that came from you being an engineer first and then having also an entrepreneurial background.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean innovation, invention is something that's really interesting to me. It's like why do some people figure things out and others don't? I think a lot of it, yeah, it's just like you just have to have I mean, you know, people study creativity. It's not that people who are creative are special really uh it's just they know a lot of weird
0: things (laughs) yeah
1: uh and then their brains are maybe better maybe uh, maybe it's just maybe it really is just that they know lots of weird things and then they just connect them and everyone has that ability it's just like but it's also very clear you know if you like look at someone who's quote unquote creative you know they're often only creative in areas that they know a lot about and so you know it's like why does oh yeah so it's like why does somebody come up with an idea and you know other people don't um, I think it's just, yeah, some combination of knowing the right things and having the right experience and then having the right incentives to like think about it. And then, you know, it's pretty reliably then something will pop out. Uh, yeah. And I often like wonder like, why isn't anyone else like working on this <laughs> in the same way? And, you know, I keep asking myself that question because it's like either either we're crazy and there's nothing here or we're just, you know, for whatever reason, nobody else has thought about this. And yeah, I think a lot of it comes back to yeah, that just have like a very unusual combination of you know things I've experienced or things I know that most people don't. So like one of the big ones is, that, as you touched on, is being an engineer and kind of entrepreneur minded is you know fairly unique because a lot of engineers aren't you know interested in entrepreneurship. And so you know there's lots of other engineers that saw that React was big and knew that it'd be a good thing for uh, you know React and websites made a lot of sense. But then taking that the next step to saying, oh, well you know this could be a business. It is kind of a it is kind of a, a leap that you know you need to be both interested in you know entrepreneurship and have a good sense of you know what kind of business models there are and like see the tech trends and then combine those all together but yeah I also it's like I think a lot of two why I saw that like Gatsby made sense is that you know just my background at Drupal um, doing you know CMS projects in college and after college um, and also working at Pantheon, which uh, you know is a kind of a Drupal, WordPress, uh, uh, you know, developer tools and hosting platform and and just having a lot of experience, you know, seeing what the world of website, you know, building websites is like and knowing a lot of people in that space. Anyways, yeah, it's just kind of a combination of all these different things that made it so that I could like see something or perhaps other people did.
0: What I find interesting is how some people are uniquely positioned while others aren't and sometimes often, uh, armed with the same information, you know, why, why you, yeah. you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you know the, the, idea maze thing from Chris Dixon. Uh, I'm not familiar. Yeah. So he just said like, it's basically, it's like figuring out a startup idea is just like traveling this maze, you know, where you're just going through all these like twisting corners and like ideas. And yeah, and it really just is a lot of like hard thinking, um, to come up with something that's actually genuinely useful. And I think a lot of that is just because, you know, there are so many people trying to do startups. So it's like, there's a really high bar to meet, you know, before you kind of get out of the obvious ideas uh, that a lot of other people are already trying. Cause a lot of people, they're like, I'm going to do entrepreneurship. And then they end up doing, you know, for people in the know, it's like very derivative, very obvious uh, stuff that, you know, there's already like, five startups doing. It's like, sometimes like I talk to people who are kind of, you know, interested in entrepreneurship and they're coming with ideas and just because of my more familiarity with stuff, they're like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And I'm like, oh, here's five startups that are already doing those things. (laughs) And they're like, oh, yeah, it's just like, it's just like to get beyond the noise and to get into like virgin territory um, requires both, you know, unique, kind of a unique set of experience or knowledge and also just a lot of hard thinking.
0: So you listen to probably several of our podcasts. The Changelog is our primary show. That's where things got kicked off. Then we began Go Time JS Party, Founders Talk. This show has been around since 2010 and it's it's been a while. Like I had to pause the show for a little bit, but the point of this little segment here is to let you know that we have more than one show. And uh, more importantly, you can subscribe to them all in one single feed. We call that the changelog master feed. If you're listening on a podcast client on your mobile device right now, you can go into your search parameters for finding a new podcast to listen to and search changelog master. You'll find it. You can subscribe to it. If you want to go on the web, you can go on the web at changelog.com slash master. And the cool thing is we release certain content only to the master feed. So some of our content hits all of our different shows, but some of our content only hits the master feed. So if you want exclusive content, That isn't available anywhere else in any of the feed. ChangeLawMaster is for you. ChangeLaw.com slash master or search in your favorite podcast client for ChangeLawMaster. Subscribe to it. Get all of our shows in one single feed plus extras you can't get anywhere else. let's start with gatsby the company at this point you know you talked earlier about evidences and uh, certain indicators that made you feel a certain way and earlier in your uh in your blog post in may 2018 you mentioned that you started to feel confident that it was time to create a company devoted to bringing the full vision and i'm going to go back and say "In quotes, full vision of gatsby to fruition so Take us back to there, you know, what were were some of the indicators that, like, that was pulling you? Obviously, you were doing consulting and different things that was, like, commercialized or commercial commercial opportunities. But let's let's sort of unravel the onion and maybe even unpack full vision, what you meant there.
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, I mean, our our mission is, as we see it, is, you know, to improve developer experience around building websites and to improve, you know, the user experience of actually, you know, visiting, interacting, experiencing the website slash app. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that. One way you can think about improving something is you're like, what are all the workflows or the steps that you take to do something? And then you're like, you analyze those and then you say, okay, how can we make them better? So better can be faster, you know? So if you have to fill out this form and it takes two minutes and you can make it one minute, you know, you've made that better.
0: Twice as fast, better. Yeah,
1: twice as fast. You can make it more approachable, accessible. So it's like right now, only 10% of people who would want to, you know, do some workflow or do something can do it. And then you make it accessible to 50%, you know, then you've made it, you know, substantially better. Because all of a sudden, you know, 40% of people are interested, all of a sudden are able to do it. So, you've added a lot of value there. And uh, you can make it like more bug-free. So, it's like, you know, you can accomplish something, but it's very tedious and people frequently kind of get waylaid. Um Irrelevant stuff, and so you can like just sort of smooth out the workflow so that it, it's less error prone um, and so forth. Uh and, and then maybe kind of the final one I think is you know underappreciated, but like super valuable is you know, what if you can just eliminate the need to do a workflow, you know, or an action altogether? You know, if there's just like a step or like even a whole class of things that uh through some sort of innovation. That, that piece just completely disappears. And I think it's underappreciated because people just sort of, they assume that the state of the world as it is now must always exist. And so they don't, you know, it, it, it's just much harder to imagine, you know, a complete, not a complete, but it's harder to imagine, you know, part of the world as we think it exists, you know, as, as we see it existing now, just disappearing versus something that concretely exists and then making it better. So um, I mean, this is this is kind of the classic, like you know, disruptive versus sustaining innovation. Where you know, sustaining is like okay, make the same things we have and make them better. And disruptive is you know, uh, just just completely upend the order in some way, you know, some fundamental way.
0: Do you feel like you're in the disruptive category then? Yeah, that, that's 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 what we're doing. Uh, just to be clear.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, just just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're doing both. So I, I kind of brought that up just kind of a, a you know background because right. you know part of what we're doing is taking things that people have always done and just trying to make them better and smoother and whatever. Um, but part of yeah, a big part of what we're trying to do and why we think what we're doing is really important and valuable is you know there's just things that people do right now that we don't think you should have to do at all, such as so, yeah. So one big part is that a lot of building websites is like quote unquote performance tuning. Where a lot of web frameworks, your sites are kind of slow out of the box, and with sufficient effort and sufficient skill, you can make your site fast and our take is, why shouldn't every site just be ridiculously fast out of the box, and then you only need to think about performance if you know, you know you're you know at kind of some extreme where you know you've like created a very complex page and then you have to worry about like lazy loading stuff or whatever um, So, yeah, what if we could just eliminate the need to think about performance altogether and all you have to do is just build something and you can feel confident that it's going to be really fast. Another big, uh, you know, another big problem that people run into is, you know, running service, like running your website. Uh, You know, people spend like a ton of time, you know, setting up servers, setting up databases, um, monitoring them. You know responding to outages you know responding to traffic spikes you know on and on and on and we're like why shouldn't you know scaling and running a website be completely a non-thing like why why shouldn't it just be automatic you know that you know you you can put up a website and it can go from 10 people visiting it a day to 10 million people visiting it and there's just there's nothing more to do you know because uh, if you talk to a lot of like people experienced like website launches, I mean, they just dread the launch because you know that they 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 have just experienced you know on the biggest marketing day of the year they launch a new thing and then there's some bug
0: or whatever and the whole thing just isn't scaling and it's super slow and there's lots of errors and whatever. I can recall talking to Aaron Hammer uh, several years back around Black Friday in in Walmart. You know, oh, yeah, so is, yeah, Is that an extreme example or a pretty relevant example?
1: I mean, that is probably the most extreme example, but you know that, I mean, lots of people have black Friday type, uh, you know, marketing events, um, and lots of like smaller marketing events. Like you know, we were talking to a company that, uh, switch is switching well, switching, I guess the process of switching their sites to, to, um, Gatsby from Drupal. And they said that, you know, every time they had like a trade show, uh, you know, pretty fairly routinely, their their sites would fall down. And then since switching to Gatsby, you know, they've had like zero trouble.
0: You're right, though. I mean, you shouldn't have to worry about those things. Uh, I, I guess maybe the disruptive side of you is, is that there's several paid services or products that, you know, enable scaling, you know, Heroku Dinos, for example, or whatever, like, you, you know, rinse and repeat on down the line of, of hosting infrastructure or cloud infrastructure. A lot of that, uh, a lot of what they've built over the years along the way depends on not having you in the picture. You know, someone who, right, right. who is like, why can't it be performing out of the box? Right. No, right. Yeah. We, we, we're we not claiming to have invented this no, idea. I'm not saying you aren't. I'm just yeah. saying like you're the disruption because you can change it for them.
1: Yeah. We, we see ourselves as part of kind of one, one way to think of ourselves is, you know, we're we're like a cloud native you know website framework. Or you know we th- or, or or you know if you think like serverless you know we're like serverless websites, where the whole premise of the cloud and even more so serverless is that you don't have to care about you know the underlying you know hardware that computation resources are available on demand and in, 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 in for the most part scale free way, so that you can just say I need resources, and then as you know things go up and down. You know, it just kind of transparently, transparently, kind of horizontally scales itself out to handle you know the increased traffic with like no intervention on your on your side. Uh, so our, our our whole premise is that you know this should be this should this should be the state of the world for websites that you know handling traffic handling um, spikes uh, shouldn't even be something that you have to think about. It should just you know
0: be baked in. So performance scaling, what else? Yeah. Another big part
1: is just like setting up development environments. So, you know, it can be pretty tedious uh, with a lot of web frameworks to set things up where with a Gatsby site, you know, you just, it has one, you know, it has a, it's a node project. So it has a package.json and describes all your site's dependencies and you install it and voila, you're done. Um, and it's very simple to, you know, kind of replicate the kind of production environment uh, locally um, without a lot of uh, uh, setup work, which is huge. You know, if you're like onboarding new people. Um, another thing that we're trying to eliminate is, uh, a lot of work in web projects is really just getting the data that you want in the shape, you want it to the right place in the website. And you have to like often write a lot of custom code to do that. And our contention is, is that, you know, we, 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 we use GraphQL to query the data, uh, you know, for people to like query the data into into their into their project, and we're in our contention is that like that that's all you should do is like if you want like the whole premise of GraphQL, which we really love and why we baked it into Gatsby, is that you know all you need all you should have to do as you know the front end engineer is say you want data, and then the data just shows up, and you know we orient everything around that, and that you know we have all these ways of hooking up to different data sources, and um, so that you know you you the you the site developer. You're like, oh, I need to pull in data from this, you know, from the CMS or from this like job tracking system, or from this e-commerce platform, and you just add a plugin, and then you can immediately start writing GraphQL queries in your React components in order to pull in the data that you need, um, which is a pretty dramatic difference than you know where you're like, oh, I need this data, so I'm gonna have to you know write a bunch of custom code to you know fetch it and transform it in some way and you know, push it into the right place in the website, uh, which you know again, it's not like necessarily. It, it, and the thing about like, and I think what I think a lot of people forget about, you know, eliminating steps is they're like, oh, that's just like a couple hours. But when you have something you're trying to do, and it goes from, you know, it, you know, the, the, these couple hour steps can be real blockers from like trying out stuff. Or like officially shipping things because, you know, like, you know, it's like, say it's four o'clock and you're like, oh, I need to do this thing. And you're tired and you don't, you know, you don't really have a lot of energy. You know, you don't want to dive into something new. But if it's like a three minute step, then you can like whip out another feature.
0: Um, right. If it's easy to experiment or not a huge time scene to experiment, it's a little more likely that you will have people taking risks that can be. Absorbed easier as a startup, especially, you know, maybe some of your customers aren't exactly in the startup phase. Maybe they're enterprise and they've got, you know, great revenue tracks or whatever. But point is, is that if you enable experimentation at at low risk levels, innovation happens.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if we, we drive the cost of trying anything down to like, you know, as low as possible, the more we do that, yeah, the more experimentation, the more I, I like to call it like tinkering, you know, or yeah. fiddling. You know, you just like. A lot of building a great product or a great website, a great app or whatever is just, you know, tinker with all the different possibilities. You go down all these different rabbit holes and then you build up kind of this this feel for, you know, how everything should work. And then eventually, you know, then you say, okay, like I've explored all these different possibilities and I understand all the trade-offs and voila, this is what we should do. And this is kind of the right, you know... Uh, set up for everything. And yeah, and if it's like cheap and easy to like quickly go down all these rabbit holes, then you build up that, that kind of that mental model, that intuition around how everything works and what are the possibilities much, much faster, which means that the resulting end product, you know, is going to be much nicer. Where if it's hard to do that, you'll probably, you know, get all waterfally and just sort of make a decision up front about how things should work And then you'll build it and yeah, and you're probably going to be wrong, you know, in some way or another, but it's so expensive to kind of build it out that you end up just going to whatever you originally chose, even if it's, you know, pretty suboptimal, you know, as you figure out the end. So, yeah, so we're we're big believers that, yeah, that's like enabling that experimentation, tinkering, um, pays huge dividends into the resulting uh, quality of the product that gets produced.
0: So clearly you and I can have, you know, sort of a person to person, fairly easy conversation around this when we talk about your full vision. And, uh, you know, we started here, started to get here by talking about the, you know, blog post you shared earlier this year, May 2018, whenever you announced the company. And then you also mentioned that you were very lucky to find some great investors. So I'm imagining that part of finding those great investors was sharing a portion, if not more than the story we just kind of talked through there, which is like, Hey, we we can really disrupt and innovate and re- reduced to zero in some cases, and that became uh, convincing to these investors. Uh, your seed round was $3.8 million coming out the gate. I'm assuming part of what we just talked through the vision was shared with them. But in your own words, you said we were lucky to find some great investors. Can you talk about what that means? Like, what part is luck and what part is finding and what effort was involved on your part to to get to that point?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, so both my co-founder and I, this is our first time, you know, raising uh, venture capital, and so yeah, the luck was just like we found through kind of people we knew and like friends of friends who kind of offered to help us out. Um, yeah, we just like kind of were introduced to people we didn't know existed when we started the process, <laughs> uh, who turned out to be perfect uh, for it. So I mean, whether you call it luck or whether you call it like you know whatever, we we, we just I guess at the end of the, you know we 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 felt grateful. And whatever was the underlying cause for that happening.
0: <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to get at is the is to try to unravel the effort level to find the necessary money to begin to iterate on your confidence that you were given based on you know based on your current circumstances because like you could have confidence for several months if not half a year or whatever and not find money so kind of curious like what your journey was on finding the right kind of money the right kind of investors because. You know, it, it could have been great timing. It could have been whatever, and I'm just kind of curious at the story there of like you describe it as luck, and I'm just kind of wanting to know more about what's that really mean.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, raising money is there's so many there's so much that goes into it, but it it, gen- it generally boils down to is there a good fit between the founders and you know the market? It's like do do the founders have some fundamental Edge on delivering something really valuable to the market, and so basically our fundraising was like, "Hey, look at how awesome Gatsby is! Like, there's tons of people using it." And then we then we said, "Hey, look, it's aligned with all these really big trends around you know serverless, cloud computing in general, uh, React, you know, all, all the changes in kind of the front end uh, tooling space." Um, yeah, and then and then we kind of explained, you know, this is how we're going to make money. And then they're like, okay, you know, you clearly know a lot about this market. You've already proven that you can uh, build something that people find really valuable. Um, And all the trend lines are just going up and up and up. So, like, this is already a big space and it's going to be a far larger space in the future. Uh, And your model for how you're going to make money sounds plausible. Uh, You know, so let's do it. Uh, Because, I mean, investors... The main thing is like, investors don't need to have like high risk of certainty around an outcome. The main thing that they want to know is like, can this be really big? You know, because they want like 5%, you know, 5% odds are just fine. If, you know, the actual eventual outcome could be quite large. And so uh, I was kind of joking to uh, a friend when we were fundraising. It's like a lot of fundraising is just pretending to be a megalomaniac uh, and, and tell everyone you're going to take over the world and like sort of believe it. And then, you know, that, will, uh, that works because they, they just want to say like, because investors get really frustrated with people who are like, oh yeah, we have the best plan. Like we're making tons of money. This is so awesome. And then when they push at it a bit, it's like the total addressable market is like, you know, 500 million or something like that. They're like, well, okay, that's fine. But that just doesn't, you know, match kind of the VC model where they want to invest at a low price, something that's like highly risky, but could turn into something huge. You know, even if there's only like a 5% odd of that happening.
0: Right. This is your first time raising funds? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So how did you feel? How did you know that you can trust the people you're working with? And then, you know, the, I guess, how stock gets issued or the finances get handed over? Were you scared? Describe your personal demeanor in the process.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've been in Silicon Valley for like almost eight years, so I mean, I've had friends who've raised money and whatever. So it wasn't like a totally foreign thing. I mean, I'd never been directly involved with it, but yeah, it wasn't like a foreign thing and I'd explored the idea before in the past. And like, I've always read, I mean, I've read quite a bit about it. So the whole process was like reasonably familiar, um, at least like the outline. And then, um, when we started like getting really serious about raising money, I mean, we reached out to different people that we knew and like met with them and they kind of gave us like a deeper crash course on like how everything was going to happen. But I mean, also we found just that like the VCs themselves are like very used to explaining how stuff works because they know that there's a lot of like, you know, they, I mean, it's their thing every day and all day, whatever. But, you know, they're very used to kind of first time uh, entrepreneur, well, first time raising money entrepreneurs to come in and not know the process. So they're very used to kind of like explaining how things and they work. They get you and with so,
0: fear, uncertainty, and doubt pretty easily. They, they kind of anticipate it. So they've got their, for lack of a better pitch, like, hey, chill out. We're going to, we got your back here. And here's how we got your back.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, like VC entrepreneur relationships can be adversal, but those that tends to be when things go south <laughs> later down the stage. I mean, you, you would never take money unless you fundamentally trust the investor in some way because you're, you know, you're putting a lot, their hands and they're putting a lot into your hands. And so, you know, both sides are highly incentivized to kind of be frank and open with each other about why they do what they do and whatever. so, yeah, so, I mean, we just kind of, I mean, we knew that. So we just asked a bunch of questions and they were very helpful. Um And yeah, and then we had our kind of advisors who'd kind of been in the trenches doing things, who who kind of helped explain a bunch of stuff as well. So, so my yeah emotional demeanor, you know, when we first started, you know, I was just nervous, like, can we even raise money at all, you know? You know, we were both, you know, kind of like plunging in inches for the first time. It's like, is this even I mean we we were pretty sure this would work, but we were like, will this really work? Uh but then, you know, within like the first week and a half, we had two offers. So we were like, okay, um, we can definitely raise money. <laughs> uh so then at that point, it was more, you know, who should we who should who do we want to work with and how do we figure that out? And so we just took a bunch of meetings with different VCs and um, you know, asked lots of questions and you know ask our advisors. And then over time, we kind of like, okay, you know, like we kind of understand, you know, what different, you know, what, what kind of our range of options and, you know, what it'd be like to work with them. Uh, and then from that, you know, then we made our
0: ultimate choice. What were your primary concerns and maybe what were some questions you asked to ensure that your, um, maybe not your visions align, but your interests in, in partnering. Cause that's what a VC relationship is. It's a, it's a partnership. It's a partnership based on funding, of course, but sometimes they even bring advisory roles to, to the picture or connections. You know, what were, what were some of your concerns and questions back to them that was like, I've got to ask them this or things that got answered that you were like, okay, you're a perfect fit for us.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think most misalignments between entrepreneurs and VCs is the entrepreneur actually doesn't really want to build, you know, like a rocket ship company that's going to grow very quickly for a very long time. Uh, because that's all VCs really want. I mean, that's all VCs want to invest in, and so I think a lot of entrepreneurs say like, "Oh, wow, I have this cool idea," but either they haven't thought through it enough to you know understand whether it could be a kind of a very scalable startup, or secretly they don't want to be part of that journey, which can be kind of tumultuous. Yeah, and so you know maybe they convince yeah, so maybe they raise money, but then they don't act in a way. Uh, that will help their company grow quickly, you know, very quickly for a long time. And so because they're not acting like that, then the VCs get frustrated and start to be more kind of micromanaging and pushy and whatever. And then you have these like weird conversations where, you know, I don't know, the entrepreneur is not just not admitting their kind of real motivations for doing things or are there real fears or whatever. Uh, And so kind of the relationship goes south because then the VC is like, oh crap, like I invested in someone who, you know, isn't interested in, building out the kind of company that I was expecting that they were going to build
0: out. Right. So having clarity Um, and maybe even some clear expectations of, hey, I I need money. I need roughly this amount for these reasons. And here's our pitch. And then they're like, well, I want an entrepreneur to invest in or an opportunity to invest in that aligns with this kind of growth model or this kind of speed or efficiency or whatever. And and you're like, okay, we can we that works. We can do that. That's what we plan to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause you're like, I mean, everyone of course wants millions of dollars that they can do whatever they want with. Cause I mean, that's basically what you get. You get like millions of dollars that you can do whatever you want with, but you know, who, who wouldn't want that? Right. But if you go into it, not fully realizing the responsibility that you're taking on, which is, you know, to deliver a really great return on that money, you know, you just kind of want millions of dollars to like throw great parties and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Look cool to your friends. I don't know. Whatever. That's, that's
0: what I wanted to get at was, you know, what are your motivations, uh, you know, with the money? Like, what are you going to do with it? Cause you know, we talked earlier about your history, you know, engineer, entrepreneur, um, some of the reasons and indicators that gave you confidence and evidence to move forward. And I said, okay, great. Now you can move forward. Um, turning this into a company. Are you capable? You know, do you want to, and are you willing to change? I assume these, you got great answers for this, but like, this is what I think about, like, do, do you want to, are you willing to do what's necessary to take on venture capital? And I think that you have to be a certain type of person in, in a leadership role in a startup to say yes to something like that and be responsible and, and, you know, be able to, to be able to follow through.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, and, and both my co-friend and I, Sam, Sam and I, we'd both like, Thought a lot about this and talked about this and they're like, okay yeah, we're definitely, I mean we're definitely up for the challenge of you know a venture-backed company, and we said you know we, we, we knew that Gatsby had the potential to be you know the kind of the, the type of company that somebody would invest in. So you know that that part was like uh fairly straightforward, and like VCs you know definitely are trying to sniff out people who aren't you know serious about that. It's part
0: um, of the so we passed process, that right.
1: Yeah, 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 so so we passed that pretty easily. So then it was just like the uncertainty we had was like, well, we think this model makes sense, but maybe we're missing something or whatever. So we just weren't sure if, uh, you know, sure at first if, you know, investors would believe our model because it's kind of novel in some ways. Um, but yeah, we, we, as it turned out, you know, we found, uh, we, we found investors who did have, you know, experience with other companies were doing similar sorts of stuff to us. And so they immediately saw the potential um, and things went pretty smoothly uh, once we found them.
0: Let's talk about where you're at now. Then, I mean, obviously you you took the money, right? You uh, you forged a relationship. You have a great partnership. I'm assuming. Um, you're several months down the line. This is that was May when things kicked off, or at least the announcement. I'm sure that it was several months prior to that that, that you were discussing and reviewing and deliberating and whatnot to to go that route. Now we're you know barely a week away from October, the same year. You know, what's happened since May or the announcements and stuff like that? Like what, uh maybe not so much what's happened, but like, where are you at in terms of like iterating on those promises?
1: Yeah, yeah. So for an open source business to work, you have to have like the whole business, app, the commercial business aspect of it is entirely dependent on the open source part being, you know, really amazing. So our first priority after taking money was to basically scale up kind of the open source sides of things um, to just, you know, really accelerate the improvements there. And uh, so, yeah, so our first four hires were, we hired a UX researcher who she's been like, she just like talks to Gatsby users, you know, all day long and then translates that into improvements, both to our open source product. And then also kind of the, the, the infrastructure, tooling infrastructure on it. So we have like, you know, gatsbyjs.org with a bunch of like kind of tools on it and, and also stuff within, um, you know, GitHub and so forth. Uh, and then we hired a designer who um, has, you know, both designs and does a lot of front engineering around, um, you know, all all these different kind of projects like the .org project or the .org site uh, and uh, also our .com stuff, our commercial stuff. Uh, and then we hired like two, um, there's two kind of, uh, very active people in the community who are helping out a lot, you know, answering questions, reviewing PRs and also writing quite a few PRs. Um, and we were, you know, we were just like super impressed with their work. And so we reached out to them and said, Hey, uh, would you like to work on Gatsby full time? <laughs> and they were pretty flabbergasted because they didn't even know <laughs> that would be a possibility because they didn't know. I mean, we were raising money and so forth. Um, and so after kind of the initial shock subsided a bit, they were like, uh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Um, yeah, they, they just really liked the project and like, like the vision of it. And, and anyways, and they, and they've been fantastic, um, and have freed up a lot of my time, um, and also just really pushed the project forward a ton. Yeah. And then we hired, a, a, a developer relations person, Jason, who you talked to previously on here. Cause yeah, a big, I mean, you think about open source, like if you think about any product, it's like, where do you create value? You create value from having a great product, but if nobody uses that product, then you know the value created is like the kind of the potential value that can be created per person and then the number of people using it. So it's kind of like x, you know, x times y equals the actual total value being created. And so we wanted to make you know the actual product a lot better, but we also needed to you know, evangelize it so that more people would understand it's like, oh, Gatsby's this, you know, Gatsby exists, and Gatsby's actually a great fit for all these problems that I have. And then, you know, start using it. And so, um, Jason's been fantastic about, you know, doing that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of like our initial hiring push was just to build out, you know, the team around the open source project and, and driving that forward, um, mm-hmm. in a bunch of really critical ways. And yeah, and that's been like really, really, I mean, that's, it's just been amazing just to, you know, see them really start to own, you know, all these different areas and drive a lot of uh, really awesome improvements there. And then our next focus has been around, you know, just kind of the kind of, you know, the, our cloud infrastructure and commercial uh, products that we're going to be building. And so uh, we've made several hires there, uh, both on kind of like cloud infrastructure engineers. And then also we have um, a marketing sales hire that we've made uh, who are starting to build up those, those types of things.
0: Did you get any advice with this strategy? Is this is this something that uh, you and Sam came up with, or was was the you know your venture capital folks involved in this, or is or is it they're they're out of the picture and it's just you and Sam and team doing and building? Uh, I mean, this is a mix.
1: Yeah, sure. There's a mix too. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is this is a reasonably standard OSS growth you know strategy, uh, which is you know like I was saying, it's like you you have to have tons and tons of open source adoption before you can have a great business. So, I mean, that's why I didn't even think about, you know, starting a company until OSS growth was like quite a ways long because I needed to validate that, you know, it it could grow large enough that, you know, business actually made sense. And so, and then even after we raised money, the focus was, okay, let's set the foundation so that, you know, Gatsby can grow, you know, to, you know, even way better than it is now. Um, and get the right people in place to kind of shepherd that growth. Uh, and then once, you know, that was kind of like sailing along, uh, then we started moving focus only then to, uh, you know, worrying about kind of the commercial side of things.
0: It sounds like, um, it sounds like you think it's common knowledge and I would say potentially potentially you know, what you're doing, what you've done. I would say that the reason why I think that this conversation on this podcast makes sense is that it's not common knowledge. You know, that, you know, to you it seems because you're maybe you're so close to it and you're in it every day and that's all you think about, it's common knowledge. But I would think that, you know, the types of hires you've made, the strategy behind them and the reasons why you think they'll work, your confidence is uh, is not extremely common.
1: Uh, well, no, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not gonna disagree with that. Uh, it's common to the small group of people that think about this stuff, right? And have experience with this stuff. Okay. There are the thing is, I mean, there are blog posts, you know, that line all these things out. So yeah, and it's so, and you, and you can look at you know what uh you know there there's there's been a number of you know very successful open source companies you know like Elastic is kind of a more recent one, you know MuleSoft. Yeah, and so you can also just like look at you know what other you know what kind of other MongoDB is another great one. Anyways, you can look at what these these companies have done and uh learn a lot from these models. But yeah, it's not, I agree, common knowledge in the sense that lots of people know it. But it's it's common in the sense, you know, that the future is unevenly distributed common, you know, where if you happen to be in the pocket of open source, you know, then it is
0: common. Right. You mentioned numbers. Um Blatant the game in this conversation, at least to mention numbers, but just since you mentioned the growth, which we haven't talked about really at all, um, in the same blog post you mentioned, Gatsby is used by tens of thousands of developers and orgs, and is downloaded nearly half a million times per month. And this is back in 2018, so I'm, I'm assuming those numbers have maybe doubled since then, or at least uh, at least some some uh, some X. What's the X on those numbers?
1: Uh, kind of across the board. You know, pretty much everything's growing, like website traffic, downloads. Uh, stars, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all growing like 15, 20% a month.
0: Maybe personally, how are you transitioning? Because I mean, a lot of this conversation was in the thick of product and strategy and parts of it uh, somewhat technical. And so obviously you're an engineer entrepreneur. How much do you struggle with teetering that line of engineer, CEO, and your shift and change in role?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely yeah, it can be hard. Uh I guess the hard part is just uh you know, knowing that you're really good at certain things, but knowing that your role demands you to do new things and then kind of taking the leap of faith that, you know, you can transition smoothly and that, you know, you'll kind of be able you just just you'll be able to do things, um but also that, you know, you'll you'll retain the trust and uh uh, confidence of, you know, people around you as you're kind of learning those new skills and so forth. Uh, yeah. So, there, there's this kind of this, uh, yeah, it is very much a leap of faith, you know, jumping from something very comfortable to, you know, into a new task, you know, learning it fast enough to, you know, feel confident yourself, but then also know that you're providing, you know, good help to and fulfilling the needs of that role, you know, to, to the other people uh, around, uh, around you
0: what do you think the number one thing is that you personally are getting right in that transition and how is it affecting product and company?
1: Yeah. I think a lot of it is, yeah, just, I think a lot of it's just accepting that I'm not going to be good at everything and I can't do everything. Cause that, I think that was the, the hardest thing for me at first was I went from, I was just kind of like a one man band, you know, for when the, in the open source days. And so switching from that where I was doing, you know, most writing, most of the PRs reviewing all the PRs, you know, writing like writing a lot of blog posts, uh, writing all the docs, or most of the docs, or whatever. At least reviewing all the docs that came in. To you know, hiring and stepping back from you know all these pieces, and yeah, it's just it's just it's yeah, just like letting go of stuff and you know trusting you know people who are kind of now owning those roles to do a great job. And yeah, so just just kind of yeah, so it's like knowing that you're really good at something, and then hiring somebody else to do those things. And then kind of using them, that freed up time to then learn new roles that you know, are needed as as the project grows. Um, I think it's also hard, too, is just to, I have to understand myself, you know, like my motivations. And cause sometimes it's like, OK, you know, maybe you shouldn't leap into that new role. Uh, maybe you should just hire somebody.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about that. I'm curious if, um, if you're a fan of doing something before hiring somebody to do something. Uh, or is it sort of like... Sometimes, yeah, it depends. The classic answer, right? It depends.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely on the depends. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's just like you know, we hired, you know, we hired a veteran uh, sales leader, and you know, he, I mean, we obviously needed sales help, and we obviously didn't know what we were doing, and you know, you know, enough to actually do it at kind of like the scale and level that we needed, and so you know, hiring someone who has like you know proven expertise and skills in the area, who we trust. It's just kind of an obvious thing to do. I think I think it gets more so yeah, so there's like there's kind of like well understood roles and well understood, you know, needs. And actually trying to do those jobs yourself could just be a waste of time because it's like, well, that obviously needs to happen. Um, where it's more ambiguous, I think you don't really know what you need, uh, per se. Yeah. Then I think actually jumping into that and trying it out and figuring out, I, I think that's, that's an important part of the process because you need to actually understand that, that world.
0: And if you have a hard time writing the, the, uh, the job post for somebody and you're not clear what you can even instruct them to do, that's probably something where you should camp out and a little bit further, you know, so you can get some more clarity on like what the job actually is. Cause you can't really lead them well in their mission, which is clarity and expectations. If You don't understand, but if the role is clear and there are expectations that you can firm up, it's a little easier to hire for somebody, hire somebody versus like feeling like you need to do everything first before you hire somebody to do it. I can get that. And plus, I mean, how do you scale fast if you got to do all the jobs?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe like do the job before you hire the job is not the right way of thinking about it. It's like understand the job and then hire for that job. And so it could mean that you actually do the job to understand the job. Or it could just mean that you talk to a bunch of people. So, I mean, so, so my co-founder, Sam, um, you know, he, he leads kind of the enterprise side of things. You know, so what he did, so before we hired, you know, a salesperson, like the, the sales leader, we first, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, what kind of, you know, how are we going to make sales? Like, you know, what what kind of sales are we going to be doing? Or is it going to be predominantly like kind of large enterprise deals? Or is it going to be, you know, mostly self-serve with like the occasional, you know, upsell to like you know, a smallish, you know, 20, k whatever annual deal or something with like some support or whatever thrown in, um, you know, because those, those two types of models, and there's lots of other models, of course, but anyways, those two types of models are like very, very different. And then the type of, you know, sales, the sales organization is also very different. And the kind of leadership that you need and the systems that you need are also very different. So, you know, we had to like resolve that kind of fundamental question ourselves. Um, before we could even think about hiring somebody
0: you had to figure out who your customer was,
1: yeah, 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 exactly yeah. even more fundamental question yeah there, there's like yeah, we had to, you know we had to figure out a lot of things before we could even start thinking about the salesperson, but then once we understood that, then uh Sam just went and talked to a bunch of candidates and to other people just in general about like, hey, like what kind of person do we want and then you know that led to you know a lot of further refining of a kind of our ideal our model of what an ideal candidate would be. Uh, and then after we got through all that, then, you know, we got some introductions to people and we interviewed them. And, you know, the person we, we ended up hiring, you know, uh, Jim Eddick, uh, he, you know, he's worked, you know, he worked at New Relic, he worked at Logly, He worked at several other developer companies, uh, you know, selling similar types of products and is very experienced, you know, setting up kind of the systems and sales teams uh, to do kind of like, you know, what we ended up is like, okay, we're going to be predominantly, you know, high volume, uh, low transaction costs. Uh, kind of sales. And so, but anyway, so, so, you know, we didn't necessarily need to do any of the work that he is now doing, but we needed to understand what we needed done, <laughs> the job we right. needed done before we could hire that person.
0: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's the, that's the, um the hard line is, uh is one, how do you get the clarity, right? How do you understand? How do you know? Do you do some of the job yourself for a while, How do you discover certain things? And I think in sales in particular is is unique because you got to understand what you are selling. And then two, who you can sell it to. And then three, how you can inherit repeat buys or good customer experiences or renewals and all these different things that are all, unless you've done any sales whatsoever, which I'm assuming, you know, when you took on VC funding, you weren't quite there yet. You were beginning that process. You were still learning what you were building and who you were selling it to and all these things. So you're still, even probably to this day, still iterating on some level of what you are selling and who you're selling it to and why even. Right. Right. Which I find very fascinating. Let's let's close with and I don't even know if you have anything I want to ask you. Uh we didn't uh pre rehearse any of this stuff. So I'm just curious, you know, what's on the horizon for you? What's, you know, unknown to anyone looking at Gatsby either as an open source user or somebody who's like, I can really see after hearing this conversation, checking this technology out or what you're doing and potentially being a customer, you know, what is on the horizon for you all that no one knows about that you can either completely spill the beans on or just tease? What's what's upcoming?
1: <laughs> yeah, so we're really excited about uh, kind of the the cloud tools that we're building, because I guess you think about it's like the category we're in of you know static sites where you produce a site. And then it's, like, files that are output. It's, like, it has some fundamental limitations uh, that make it, you know, basically unsuitable for all except, you know, a small percentage of sites. Uh, which, you know, right now, like, that, you know, the, 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 the percentage of the web that's running on kind of the model that we're working in is, you know, a half a percent, three-quarters percent or something of websites. And what we're working on is going to make, you know, Gatsby usable for, like, 20, 30, 40 X more websites. Uh, so we're really excited to make that happen. And kind of the fundamental limitation is just around how fast you can build sites because uh, there's a build step. And so, you know, you make a change and then you have to like rebuild the site before it goes live. And our goal is to eliminate the build step altogether that, I mean, it'll still happen, but it'll be like so fast that essentially you won't even feel like there was a build process. And so we're working on making like Gatsby, you know, incremental builds, you know, be, um, you know, very quick, like, you know, sub five seconds. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a big, it's a big R and D project. Um, and, and there's a lot of work to make it happen, but uh, we're very confident that we can do it. And, you know, once we make that happen,
0: yeah, things are going to get really crazy. Very, very exciting. All right, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you sharing so much. It's been awesome. to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. I'm really glad, uh, we had this conversation as well. It was really fun. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed the show, if you got any value from the show, do me a favor. Leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Favorite it on Overcast or share it with a friend. Of course, I want to thank our awesome sponsors and partners, Rollbar, Linode, and Fastly. Fastly is our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. We trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Head to Linode.com ChangeLog. Founders Talk is hosted by me, Adam Stakoviak. Editing is done by Tim Smith. It's mixed and mastered by myself. Music is by the ever awesome brand master cylinder and if you want to hear more episodes like this subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for changelog master you'll find it subscribe to it get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed once again thanks for listening i'll see you again soon